Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Before I begin, let me give you some big news. We are proud to announce that the PCC is now fully indexed and abstracted by the National Library of Medicine. You can find us at PubMed, where you can also link directly to articles on the PCC website. This achievement is a testament to the rigorous scientific contributions of PCC authors, the skillful direction of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Larry Culpepper, and the quality work of PCC editorial staff. We look forward to 2017 and the continuing growth of the PCC. So now, let's get started with the podcast. For patients diagnosed with brain tumors, coping with the uncertainties surrounding treatment, prognosis, and personal implications can take a significant psychological toll. Not surprisingly, such patients are often at higher risk for being diagnosed with psychiatric disorders. In this context, the association between brain tumors and psychiatric disease is both well-established and intuitive. However, the question of whether pre-existing psychiatric disease may alter one's risk for developing a brain tumor is less well understood. The authors of this study analyzed patient data compiled from every major hospital in the state of California between 1995 and 2010. Looking at nearly 7 million patients in total, they discovered that patients who were admitted to the hospital carrying a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, or bipolar disorder were at higher risk for being readmitted to the hospital within five years with a brain tumor diagnosis. More specifically, they found that the higher risk applied only to certain kinds of tumors, namely slow-growing, benign tumors, and not to others. These findings suggest that while some people may worry about a psychiatric disease causing a brain tumor, the reality is likely just the opposite, that for some patients, a slow-growing tumor may first declare itself as a psychiatric manifestation before being discovered outright. The project described in this study was partially supported by a National Institutes of Health grant. ADHD is often recognized as a disease of childhood and largely remains underdiagnosed and inappropriately treated among adults. However, the recent update on ADHD diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 may increase the diagnosis in adults. Therefore, it is important to raise awareness of adult ADHD and improve knowledge of its management. The objective of this systematic review by Young and Goodman is to increase awareness of ADHD in the primary care community and to provide guidance for its management. Adult ADHD presentations are different from those of children in several aspects, which may complicate diagnosis. Adult ADHD is primarily treated by medication assisted by behavioral interventions, with special considerations given to stimulant misuse and abuse, medication used during pregnancy and the postpartum period, and adult-specific health conditions, such as cardiovascular disease. Adults with ADHD often suffer from unemployment, financial difficulties, and an unsuccessful personal life. Overall, the successful management of ADHD in adults requires consideration of many facets and the use of an individualized, evidence-based treatment approach. 
Adult-specific guidelines and diagnostic tools may facilitate adequate diagnosis and treatment. Funding for this systematic review was provided by Neos Therapeutics, Inc. It is well known that stimulants can cause a schizophrenia-like psychotic disorder with a variety of symptoms, including manic, depressive, and positive and negative psychotic symptoms. The course of these symptoms has not been well studied. This prospective study followed up 50 patients with methamphetamine psychosis to see how their clinical symptoms changed during a three-month period. Results showed that those who remain abstinent improved in manic, positive, and negative symptoms, but not in depressive symptoms. However, the patients who relapsed to methamphetamine use did not improve and even deteriorated in positive psychotic and depressive symptoms. Further analysis showed that reuse of methamphetamine could affect the severity of all symptom categories at follow-up. Interestingly, those patients who had a higher score of negative symptoms at baseline assessment more frequently relapsed into methamphetamine use in follow-up. It seems that the severity of various symptom categories is not uniformly affected during the course of methamphetamine-induced psychotic disorder. Therefore, all of the symptom categories should be independently addressed at each follow-up visit. Chronic diseases are increasingly prevalent and problematic. Although chronic disease management involves lifestyle modification, few physicians are adequately trained in effective motivational interventions. Can an interactive presentation about lifestyle medicine prepare medical students to coach patients in managing chronic illnesses? To find out, the authors of this study surveyed first- and second-year Harvard Medical School students before and after a presentation on lifestyle medicine and quantified changes in their knowledge, attitudes, and confidence and skills. Medical students learned the basics of behavioral change after a one-hour presentation, and their confidence with regard to implementing interventions increased. Median scores of confidence in counseling patients on lifestyle changes improved, as did their ability to counsel patients on exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, and smoking cessation. People with serious mental illness die on average 25 years earlier than the general population, mostly due to treatable medical conditions such as infection and cardiopulmonary disease. They also have health care costs two to three times that of persons without serious mental illness. Those taking second-generation antipsychotics are at significantly elevated risk of weight gain, hyperglycemia, and dyslipidemia, which appear early in the course of illness. Therefore, early and creative interventions are needed to reduce the burden of disease for those with serious mental illness. Reverse co-location care models, where medical services are embedded within psychiatric settings, reduce lifestyle risk factors, ER visits, and readmissions. Yet, little is written about reverse co-located medical care in inpatient psychiatric settings. In this issue's continuing medical education offering, the authors looked retrospectively at psychiatric inpatients taking second-generation antipsychotics to identify associations between the mode of medical care and screening, diagnosis, and treatment of chronic medical comorbidities. 
Over a 10-month period, patients from two psychiatric inpatient units at an academic medical center, one with reverse co-located medical care and the other with treatment as usual, were evaluated by chart review for demographics, vital signs, laboratory values, medical diagnoses, and medications. Significantly more screening laboratory tests for glucose, hemoglobin A1c, and lipid levels were obtained in the treatment-as-usual group. However, abnormal screening tests were responded to more frequently in the reverse co-location group, where patients were also more likely to be diagnosed with obesity, tobacco use disorder, and hyperlipidemia, and to be treated for hypertension and hyperlipidemia. Most clinicians want to or are expected to improve their clinical practice. Instead of asking clinicians to work faster or longer to improve practice, implementation science provides another option. Implementation science is an emerging interdisciplinary field that studies how evidence-based practice can be integrated into routine clinical care in a sustainable way. This scientific field can, for example, assist with getting more patients screened for depression more consistently across a large hospital or with getting more clinicians to use evidence-based psychotherapies. This narrative review article authored by several seasoned implementation scientists offers a primer on implementation science with a direct focus on clinicians and clinical managers. The article explains some of the principles and methods of implementation science, such as, in order to change care, it is just as important to address factors at the clinic or hospital level as the provider level. The authors also use a real case scenario throughout the review to showcase how implementation science can change care. This care scenario is about a problem in care related to metabolic monitoring for antipsychotics. The authors believe that learning more about implementation science will help clinicians not only improve quality of care, but also more easily adapt in complex, ever-changing healthcare systems. Many people in healthcare believe in palliative care for their patients, but save the referral until they feel there is nothing more they can do for the patient. People who do palliative care suggest that the referral should come much earlier in the patient's course, such as at the time of diagnosis of a severe medical illness. Join Dr. Schuyler in this issue's psychotherapy casebook offering as he creates a survey with the purpose of generating a score that would point to the appropriateness of a patient for palliative care. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings and our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast your place for CNS soundbites.